What is the difference between our Lord's meekness of heart and his humility of heart? It's a good question. Uh, actually, uh, it is answered by some of the saints in this way, that humility is a virtue and meekness is its practice. So when we put humility of heart into practice, that makes our behavior meek. So, as I say, the virtue is the humility of soul, and uh, that affects that the way we practice, the way we speak, the way we act, it is essentially putting humility into practice. Do we need to pray the morning offering expressing our desire to gain indulgences daily, or do we just need a general intention to gain the indulgences attached to prayers and works? Well, of course, the general intention is important, but uh, my best understanding is that we actually need the intention to gain the indulgence uh, when we set about uh, performing the work necessary. Uh, the church attaches to indulgences to certain prayers, the use of certain sacramentals, um, even reading sacred scripture. And she does this for the sake of encouraging us to use these means of salvation. And um, we have to have the intention to gain the indulgence. So I, I have to say that the, on the safe side, it's necessary to have an actual particular intention to gain the indulgence in order to, to gain it. That, for example, on, on November 2nd, All Souls Day, we have to have the intention to gain the indulgence for the souls of the faithful departed. That doesn't mean that every single time we enter the church and kneel down to pray the Our Fathers and Hail Marys and Glory Bees, we have to reform the intention, just having the intention on that day that as often as we perform this, we, we hope to gain that indulgence for a soul in purgatory. That is, that is certainly sufficient. But um, you can make the general intention too when you make the sign of the cross, that you would gain the indulgences necessary. Uh, the indulgence that the, the um, church provides. But uh, you can have that general intention, and I recommend we all do that. But the church, I think, wants us also to be mindful and make that intention as often as we can think of it. So we should make it, certainly, as this good writer suggests, during our morning offering each day. And we have a question. Can the souls in limbo have masses said for them? Would they gain anything from masses being offered for them, such as graces? And the answer is no. Um, they can have masses, obviously. Um, you know, masses can be offered for them. But can they benefit from those masses? Uh, no, their situation is fixed. What is that situation? Well, they have no personal sin. And so they are not tormented by the fires of hell. Um, they have a place of natural happiness. Um, but... Original sin still has affected their nature and was never removed by baptism, by the grace of faith, hope, and charity, supernatural faith, supernatural hope, and supernatural charity. <clears throat> and therefore, they cannot receive the beatific vision. And um, the natural happiness that they have is, is something fixed. Well, there are those who say, 
that there is a good uh, hope that the new earth that God creates after this world as we know it, the world of sin as we made it, is destroyed, that they will inhabit this earth and they will have a kind of paradise here on earth, a natural paradise. Uh, the church has never actually ruled on that. But uh, in any case, um, we, we can pray for the souls in purgatory. And they are really the only ones we can pray for that will benefit from our prayers. Uh, the souls in hell cannot uh, benefit from our prayers. The souls in heaven certainly cannot. They have the beatific vision and all the good that they can possibly have. And so uh, if the, the question also arose uh, from this writer, if uh, we can visit the souls in limbo when we get to heaven. Uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know if there's any prohibition against it. Um, um, so, you know, many of these souls are children who died before they saw the light of day even. Many of them aborted children. They will never suffer the fires of hell, but they will not have the supernatural bliss of heaven. Nonetheless, there is a school of thought that says that our Lord and our Blessed Mother could actually uh, visit them and um, uh, give them the happiness, for example, that the apostles and the disciples would have had with our Lord here on, on earth during his lifetime. Um, that's not a settled question, though. Uh, there's even a question as to whether their parents could visit them. Um, that, that, again, is not a settled question, but at least I know of no reason that would forbid it. I know we read about uh, the account of Lazarus. Our Lord gives us a parable about Lazarus, the poor man, uh, who wanted to eat of the crumbs that fell under the table of the rich man, Dives, and um, he was not given, uh, Dives would not allow him to do so. The dogs themselves would eat of the crumbs, but the poor man Lazarus was shut out. And uh, they both died, as you know, our Lord said, said that Dives went to hell, the rich man went to hell, and, Ab and uh, Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, signifying to heaven. And uh, Dives wanted Lazarus to come from heaven to visit him in hell, at least uh, to dip his finger into a pool of water and to touch his tongue because Dives was suffering so terribly in hell. And God said, no, it is not possible to cross that gulf between heaven and hell. And limbo is sometimes referred to as hell. In fact, when our Lord descended into hell from the cross, he actually went to limbo. And uh, we say in the, in the creed, he descended into hell. It is called hell because the souls who are there will never have the beatific vision and see God face to face. So to that extent, it is considered to be theologically a part of hell, and yet the suffering of hell is not there. And that, um, and that is very significant. Okay? They do not have the hope of the souls in purgatory to see God face to face, yet they do not have the sufferings of hell, because they have no personal sin of their own. And so uh, their situation is, is quite different from those of the souls in hell, different from the souls in purgatory. Um, there are some things the church has not defined for us. We don't know. We can only theologically speculate. So it is quite possible that, um, yes, even the souls of those in limbo 
uh, can actually receive the visitation, and, uh, not the beatific vision, but the visitation of the holy souls in, uh, in, in heaven at times. Now, we have to realize that the souls in limbo, like those now suffering in purgatory, even as those now in heaven and in hell, that all of those will rise and all those souls will be reunited with bodies that God fashions for them um, and that is suitable for their condition. And so the souls in limbo also will rise from the dead as everyone else. And they also will be present at the judgment. Um, and the, the estate of them afterwards, we know what the state of, we know very well what the state of those in hell will be. We know as well as we can fathom the state of the souls in heaven, we know what that will be. Uh, purgatory will be no more. But we have not, the church has not really defined very clearly what the state of the souls in limbo will be after the resurrection. Will our confessed sins also be revealed at the general judgment? Well, that's a very good question also. Um, the sins that we've confessed and the sins that, we've been, that have been absolved, will those be revealed at the general judgment? Well, you know, prior to the general judgment, the end of the world, there is the particular judgment of each soul that comes before our Lord to account for the time for the life that God gave it. And um, we're familiar with the account of St. Margaret Mary. Uh, St. Margaret Mary was the young religious who received the apparitions of the Sacred Heart as you know, in the early 1680s. And um, she told her confessor about these revelations she was receiving, these visitations from our Lord. And her confessor, of course, having the church's prudence and caution about these things, gave her this instruction. I know many, perhaps all of you are aware of this. He told her, well, then, if this happens again, you ask our Lord to tell you what my worst sin was. Ask our Lord to reveal to you the worst sin committed by me, your confessor. And so the next time the confessor was there to hear confessions for the sisters, St. Mary Margaret, Margaret Mary came for confession, and she didn't mention anything to him, so he asked her, did our Lord come to you again? She said, yes, Father. And he said, did you ask him the question that I instructed you to ask. And he said, yes. She said, yes. And the confessor said, well, what did he say? And Saint Margaret Mary Alacoque said, well, when I asked him what was your worst sin that you ever confessed, his answer was, you, uh, you, what was the worst sin you ever committed? His answer was, well, you had confessed it and been absolved of it, and so he forgot it. So... To him, it was something forgotten. And uh, now that's truly a divine answer. That's not a, a, the answer of hell. That's not the answer of a demon. Because a demon would relish nothing better than to reveal some, some, some such fault, some sin, and scandalize possibly St. Margaret Mary. And, uh, but the demon did not answer. This was certainly a divine answer. I've forgotten it because you confessed it and I absolved you. That's God speaking there, and that was a great test to see the origin of these visions that St. Margaret Mary was receiving. 
So that does raise the question now, if we confess sins and are absolved of them, when we stand before our Lord uh, for judgment individually, will those sins actually appear? Will they be forgotten? What will we face at that time? Um, well, this answer that St. Margaret Mary gave to uh, Father, I think the Blessed Claude de Clavier, if I'm not mistaken, um, her confessor, was a mercy of God, it's true, but we have to understand that when we face our Lord for judgment, our Lord wants us to understand his mercy and his justice. And uh, it may be that his mercy and justice are best revealed to us by that, that he would say, well, all of these sins have been forgotten, all of these sins have been forgiven, and uh, therefore they do not have any bearing on this judgment. Um, I don't know, though. Again, the church has not pronounced on this subject, so it's just a, an opinion for what it's worth. But uh, I personally tend to think that the remembrance of those sins on our part will remind us of God's great mercy and have a, actually an important role to play in our understanding of the mercy and the justice of God. So uh, if, that, if our Lord's justice and mercy are better revealed by, again, uh, reminding us of the sins we committed and the power of God's forgiveness, forgiveness beginning with the grace that he gave to us to repent of them, then if that better serves the purpose of revealing the justice and mercy of God, then I think those sins will be a factor. And at the general judgment also. The general judgment actually completes the particular judgment. Because the particular judgment tells us, we each one of us individually, God's, God's judgment of us and God's mercy towards us. But there is still that question about all of creation and all of the saints in heaven and all of the souls that will be in hell, all of those to be saved, all of those to be condemned, there's the question of God's judgment and God's mercy toward them all. And so at the general judgment, that question, that great outstanding question of the mercy and the justice of God toward every single soul will be answered for each and every one of us. And so we will see the perfection of God's justice and the perfection of God's mercy in all of his judgments of every individual soul and all the decisions that each one has made from the Napoleons of the world to the Stalins all the way down to the scullery maids and so on. The justice and mercy of God toward each and every single soul will be revealed. And again, the question then arises, if our knowledge and appreciation of God's justice and mercy are served by all of the sins that mankind has committed uh, being revealed, then they will be revealed. If the justice and mercy of God are better revealed by this, as it were, forgetfulness of sin, where God says all these sins that have been absolved simply disappear, vanish, as though they had never been, well, uh, then I, I'm, I suppose that's how it will happen. Uh, personally, uh, if one were to say, which do I think would be more revelatory and give us a better appreciation of God's mercy and justice, I think the fact that all of this is laid before us 
um, and that we see not only the, the consequences of the sins that were not confessed and not absolved, but we see the consequences of the sins that were confessed and that were absolved. And we see the greatness of God's mercy and the power of that absolution. If that serves the purpose better, to impress upon our minds and hearts God's infinite justice and mercy, then I think that's what would happen. And I think that, no, in that regard, that even our confessed sins and absolved sins uh, will simply not uh, be uh, laid aside and have no part in the general judgment. I think it will. I think they will have a, certainly be revealed at the general judgment in order to manifest God's glory. Another question, is it permissible to make a spiritual communion in a state of mortal sin? Yes, in fact, uh, if you cannot receive our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, really, in the sacrament itself, um, then that's advised to everyone to make a spiritual communion. And uh, I would say, even especially those who can't receive him because they're in the state of mortal sin, they should offer their hearts and souls and ask our Lord to come into their hearts spiritually. Why? Because the prayers and whatever else they may offer during the time they're in a state of mortal sin is what is necessary for them to return to the state of grace. You know, a, a father, a mother, sister, brother might, um, might be praying for someone they love, but if they're in the state of mortal sin, whatever prayers or sacrifices they offer have to be directed to their first responsibility. And their first responsibility is for their own soul to be in the state of grace. So those in the state of mortal sin need the actual grace of God to return to the state of grace and do whatever necessary to be restored to the state of grace. So all of their prayers and sacrifices are directed toward that, their first responsibility, getting them in the state of grace. So when a soul is in the state of mortal sin and makes an act of perfect communion, uh, makes, makes a, a spiritual communion, this is in the direction of repentance and receiving the grace from God necessary for them to return to the state of grace. So it's a very good thing for them to do, to make that act of spiritual communion, even though that mortal sin keeps them from receiving our Lord sacramentally. Uh, Father, do you have a few suggestions on books to read and put into practice for someone who is just starting in the practice of mental prayer. Well, we, we do have the book, The Practice of Mental Prayer, uh, there. I think it's very good. There's very, a lot of good information on that. And uh, the saints themselves have, have written on the practice of meditation. So I, I think starting with the book that we have there, and by the way, if all those books are gone, I do have a good supply of them, and I'd be glad to provide more. So just let me know that you're interested in acquiring that book. But that, is, um, that, that book is written precisely for that purpose, to um, encourage people to practice um, what we call mental prayer, meditation, um, starting with the, the awareness of the presence of God and going from there. Uh, remember, when we do um, make that mental prayer, not just uh, reciting the words, but actually turning our thoughts, our attention, turning our affection to God, uh, wordlessly even, then we, uh, we are practicing mental prayer. 
And uh, that is obviously uh, where all prayer is supposed to lead, to directing our minds and our hearts to God. And that book is how to do that, isn't it? Like a manual on how to get started doing that. Uh, Father, I read somewhere that a practical atheist is someone who knows there is a God but lives as if there is no God. Is this true? Well, actually, I alluded to this yesterday in talking about the virtue of humility, that someone uh, may believe in God, um, but his view is very distorted because he has little humility himself and doesn't have an accurate idea who he is. And so he can believe in God, that there is a supreme being who made all things, uh, who is a supreme judge, and yet his relationship with that God is distorted by a lack of humility. That's true of all of us. I mean, we, we all are affected by pride, obviously, but uh, we're all meant to overcome that gradually by the grace of God to have a, an accurate understanding of who we really are uh, in creation and in the mind of the Creator. And uh, so that enables us then to have a proper relationship with Him. Um, pride distorts that view and uh, is a lie. Essentially, it is a lie, and by pride we are living a lie. And pride leads us actually, um, it takes us out of contact with reality. And someone who's uh, whose who whose mind is not in contact with reality is actually technically insane, and pride actually makes us rather insane, and uh, leads us to do actually crazy things and do things that get us into serious trouble. Um, this is what pride does. Pride is sort of immediately that it entered into the world. This rebellion against God induced a kind of uh, insanity in the human race. Uh, because it took us out of contact with reality. And humility brings us back into line and contact with reality of who we ourselves are. Uh, one thing that you notice about people who are insane, they live in their own false little world of their own creation, of, whom, of which they are their own little gods. And uh, so we have people in uh, insane asylums who think that they're Teddy Roosevelt and George Washington and Napoleon and all the rest, um, they fantasize about these things. And, uh, but pride does that, affects all of us to some extent in giving us a very false understanding of who we really are. And uh, that little bit of insanity does affect us day by day uh, in our daily actions, our words, and how we react to things around us. But humility is the solution. It is the cure. We'll talk about that a little bit more here. And uh, the practice of mental prayer and that kind of contemplation of the divine presence, making us aware of God and making us aware of God's awareness of us, is a very, very important measure of overcoming that pride and inducing humility in us. Now, um, let's see, among those who wrote things, a topic they like covered here, we had devotion to the Sacred Heart. I think we did speak of that. Uh, being Catholic soldiers in today's world, while also considering the consequences to one's family, such as losing a job and so on. So here, uh, this question has to do with prudence. You know, um, those, th there are those in the world who uh, have responsibilities for themselves. Every, all of us have that responsibility. But there are those who also have also taken responsibility for uh, 
spouse or children. And depending upon your responsibilities, uh, well, that depends upon uh, what prudence means for you. Because prudence means that you uh, fulfill your responsibilities before God in the right way, so as to do the most good and the least harm, to avoid damage, to avoid making things worse, and always try to make them better. That's the rule of prudence. And uh, so for a married man to put his family at risk by, for example, putting his job at risk, by taking unnecessary chances, by putting himself out there and exposing himself to a certain danger of, let's say, losing his job. So, well, he has to be much more careful about that. Someone who doesn't have the responsibilities to provide for others can be more courageous in the sense that he can be more bold about asserting himself. Um, but someone who has responsibilities and the repercussions of his boldness might well affect them badly. He's got, to, he's got to think about that. Like a soldier, an individual soldier out there, he can put himself at risk. But if he's in a position where so many depend upon him to be in that position, he's not so free to put himself at risk. Obviously, there comes a time when we have to stand our ground. You know, the question is whether you're a person uh, of, uh, well, in the world today, it's a matter uh, whether we are concerned about our personal personal comforts uh, or whether we are person, a matter of principle, whether it's a matter of principle. Do we stand on our own, uh, our own performance, our own preferences, or do we stand, take stand on the ground of our own our principles? This is the distinction that has to be made here and how we do that. So if somebody asks, well, where does one draw the line in the responsibility to take, a, let's say, a public stand against evil, again, one has to uh, determine, well, what is my primary responsibility here? Is my primary responsibility to, to, to take care of my family? And uh, the, the answer to that question might be that I have to be very more circumspect. If I'm free of such responsibilities, then I am able to take a bolder stand and take the consequences to myself. You know, our Lord says, turn the other cheek, and you can, uh, when it's yours. But you can't put the face of your wife or your children in saying, well, go ahead and smack them too. Uh, those you, you have to protect. So it does, it does change the situation somewhat, <laughs> depending on those responsibilities. Now, in our own day, Personally, again, I think that we, we do have a responsibility to stand up and to speak the truth and to take a stand on principle. And you might say, well, what about a man, again, who has a family and he might be putting not only himself at risk, but them also? Well, you see, there's also another aspect to it that needs to be taken into consideration, and that is the example that he sets for his children. He doesn't want to leave them an example of cowardice. He wants to imbue them with a sense of responsibility to stand up for what is right and be bold for their faith. And so the only way he can really imbue them with that sense is if they have that example from him. So one might say, well, a married man with a wife and children today has to be very circumspect about how he carries out his, you know, his faith. He just can't be too outspoken about what's right or wrong, because uh, those who are um, the, the minions, the minions of hell, 
will uh, go after him and persecute him, and that will affect his wife and his children too. And I say, yes, to some extent, that is absolutely correct. However, um, his responsibility as a father also is to teach his children faith, hope, and charity. And so, to some extent, he's going to have to give them an example of courage, fortitude, and standing up for principle. And um, so where to draw that line is a good question. You could ask his pastor about that. What would be the prudent thing to do? Uh, to, again, you know, accomplish the most good and to um, avoid the most evil. Uh, with regard to prudence, there are two rules, basically. Uh, the second rule is, if you can do or say anything to make the situation better, then by all means, go ahead, say it, do it. But the problem is that there are times when we can't think of a single thing to say or do that we have confidence will make things better. Sometimes it's very difficult to figure out, well, what can I say or do that will actually help matters right now? So the first rule, the first rule of prudence is whatever you do, whatever you say, don't make things worse. Just don't make things worse. And uh, we can always find a thousand things to say or do to make things worse. That's a lot easier. But we need to, we need to be very careful never to make things worse. And when the opportunity presents itself to make things better, we have to do that for our Lord's sake. Uh, we have a question here about devotion to the Sacred Heart and to our Lord Jesus Christ the King. And as I mentioned, these two devotions are actually not two different devotions. They are the same devotion, the Sacred Heart of Jesus and Christ the King. They are two sides of the same coin. Why? For the same reason that the authority of our Lord as King cannot be separated from his love as Redeemer. And these are the two great lessons that everyone has to learn in life to save their souls. What authority means, what love means. Because when we put these two ideas together, love and authority, we have the foundation for understanding who God is and who we are. And when you separate authority from love, it becomes tyranny. So authority and love have to go together. Authority has to be exercised because of love, motivated by love. In our Lord, that is absolutely the case. He is truly the king, and his sacred heart is truly the, the kingly heart we look to. So the devotion to our Lord's authority as king and the devotion to his love as the sacred heart really cannot be separated. They go together. Um, someone asks about home aloners. Well, you know, home aloners say it's not right that we receive any sacraments now. It's all over. Uh, there's no functioning priesthood anymore. Uh, they're wrong. Our Lord didn't leave us like that. Uh, unfortunately, the, what, they're, what leads them to that false conclusion is a legalistic idea. They say, well, look, these are the laws, and we're violating these laws, and therefore that's wrong, so we have to admit 
that we can't receive any sacraments anymore. There's no there's no mass we can go to anymore. We just have to stay home and um, you know pretend that the church has disappeared from the face of the earth. And uh, we'll we'll you know we'll we'll basically have our own home church, and that's as far as we go. There's it doesn't extend any any farther than that right now. This is a legalistic idea, and it it overlooks the basic thought uh, idea of the whole, the whole idea of law and the whole idea of the church's authority and even Christ's authority. The church expressed her mind and Christ's mind when in the Code of Canon Law that was issued after St. Pius X and was the work of his hands, uh, the Code of Canon Law ended with, at that time, Canon 2401, 414, 2414, the very last canon in the Code of Canon Law. And it was only four words. And it said, Salus animarum supreme elex. After listing all the laws of the church, it ended with this, the salvation of souls is the law, the supreme law, the supreme law. That's why Christ came. That was his purpose. All other laws have to yield to that. And so that being the case, the sacraments are there, and Christ wanted them continued. And that's why he established the authorities of jurisdiction, magisterium, and, and uh, I should say the magisterial authority, the authority of magisterium, uh, including the the teaching of the faith in magisterium and the teaching of morals in the making of laws, jurisdiction, but our Lord also gave the power of holy orders to justify from sin and to sanctify the soul by the power of the sacraments and his sacrifice, the Mass. And our Lord has set this up so that the power of holy orders can continue even if the papacy and the episcopacy are in disarray because of bad popes and bad bishops, or even no popes, as has happened 260 times. When one pope dies, the church doesn't just evaporate. The power is there within the church itself as the mystical body of Christ. And so Christ came to sanctify, and uh, first of all, to justify us from sin, then to sanctify us by grace, and that power continues. And our Lord established, he gave his powers to his apostles in such a way that that sanctifying power could continue even in the worst of circumstances. And so we look at church history, what we call tradition, and we see that it is exactly what has happened. And the advice of the church has always been the same, no matter how bad things may be. As a matter of fact, when they are the worst of all, hold fast to the traditions of the church. That's what the church has always said. And those who did always came through when the dust settled and the smoke cleared. They were always Catholics. And those who did not were not Catholic. So this is the church's teaching, and it doesn't change. From the time of St. Paul writing to the Thessalonians about the time of the coming of the Antichrist, his advice was, hold fast to the traditions that you've received. And so it is, and that's what we're doing. Now, cremation is wrong because it is a pagan practice and it is implicit denial of the soul and treats the body as though it were some sort of a trash. Um, this cremation, unfortunately, is a, a very Gnostic practice, teaching that the spirit has been imprisoned in the material body and has to be set free. 
but our religion teaches us the body is an essential part of human nature and will be resurrected and share in the glory of heaven. So cremation is not right for us. Um, well, I, there are a number of questions there. I'll let go. Uh, we'll have to move on here. Um, okay. The topic on meditative prayer. Okay, I think we spoke a bit about that. And mental prayer. I'm glad there are questions about that. Um, and, um, all right, let's see. And, uh, looking for permission for something, which is certainly granted. And, uh, Old Testament topics. And I want to talk about that too. Uh, in fact, I, I typed them out and, um, I don't have them with me right now, unfortunately. But there are a couple of them that I, that I think I could address here. Uh, and one of them I did actually address uh, in what Catholics believe recently, involving the book of Enoch. And uh, was, was there really a, a book of Enoch or Enoch uh, that was revealed? It is quoted, actually. It is cited in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle St. Jude in the Catholic epistle refers to the, the, uh, the book of Enoch and quotes from it. Um, so that is an indication that, yes, there was a book of Enoch that was really containing true re revelations from God. And yet, when the church established the canon of sacred scripture in the 300s, established that canon, list of books that were revealed by God in the Bible, um, once and for all, the church did not list the book of Enoch. The question is, why? Why, why is it a controversy today? Because uh, people have itching ears today, as St. Paul said, and they'll pile up fables for themselves. And so there's a, there's a great effort today, as there was a great effort after the death of our Lord and when the apostles were preaching the gospel, a great effort to adulterate the gospel to mislead people, to falsify the gospel. How did the Gnostics do it? How did they try to falsify the gospel? Well, their Gnostic writers would write false gospels and attribute them to this or that famous gospel personage. There is someone, some unknown Gnostic hand wrote a gospel of St. Peter. Someone wrote a gospel of St. Thomas. Someone wrote a gospel of Mary Magdalene. And these things were being uh, touted and published in those days. And the purpose was for the Gnostics to try to corrupt the gospel and the faith of the, of the people into believing the Gnostic doctrines because Gnostic doctrines were written into these false gospels. Um, and the church had to make that decision uh, between the true gospels and the false gospels. And for every true gospel of St. Matthew, St. Mark, St. Luke, and St. John, there might have been 10 others written by Gnostics to try to pervert and corrupt the faith. Fortunately, our Lord gave the authority to the church to make that decision. And the church did, in fact, and eliminated from the Catholic canon of sacred scripture these false Gnostic gospels. But the attempt was made there. Um, it almost reminds you of the book of the Apocalypse where the woman is giving birth as though the church was being born and the devil was waiting there to devour the child. So when the church came into the world, the Gnostic devil was trying, wanting to devour the child. 
the, the newborn church, but God saved the church from that fate. And so God will protect the church in our own day too. Now the people of the world are reaching for those Gnostic gospels and trying to revive them and throw them at Catholic people and say, look, look what your church has been hiding from you all this time. All this truth that the church has been suppressing. Now go and really learn what the true doctrine is. And again, the true doctrine, as far as they're concerned, is Gnosticism, that the human race really is God, that you are part of God, that you are a fragment of God, who's been imprisoned in this world by the evil God who wants to keep you subject here and wants you never to come to realize that you are God. And that's your salvation. That's the, the gnosis, the knowledge that you need to, to be saved, that you are God and you can escape his commandments, and you can escape his morality and assert your independence. Hey, Satan hasn't changed his song in all these years since the Garden of Eden. Why? Well, it worked pretty well back then. It's been working ever since. Be your own God, that's his message. And that's the message of the Gnostics. Uh, whether they're old Gnostics or modern Gnostics, they have new technology, but they have the same message. And so we had to be very wary of these things. How does that involve the Book of Enoch? Well, the church realized that, yes, there really was a Book of Enoch, and yes, it did contain divine revelation. But in the course of the centuries, and this was a very old book of the Old Testament, um, it had become corrupted. It had become corrupted by ideas that were totally alien to divine revelation. There were thoughts expressed there that really applied more to Gnostic doctrine or pagan teaching that were interpolated into the text. And so this book of Enoch now is a very large body of, of documents uh, containing all kinds of teachings about cosmology and uh, morality and so on and so forth, some of it self-contradictory. And so the church realized that Although this may well have begun as a genuine text revealed by God, it had been the, the, the text that had come down to us had been so corrupted by pagan immorality and by Gnostic false doctrine that it was impossible really to uh, distinguish uh, in that book to, to kind of filter out either all the good or all the bad that had come in there. So the church would not take the book of Enoch as it existed, and say this is divine revelation. It had been, unfortunately, corrupted so badly. And uh, one of the writers on the subject uh, who would certainly contribute to an understanding of this is a man named uh, Cornelius Alapide, uh, 1600s commentator on sacred scripture who explained this. And he actually gave some examples from the book of Enoch to show how the text had been corrupted and why the church would not approve of it. So uh, it was that the church also eliminated other writings as well, including the, the Gnostic Gospels, because again, they were adulterations of the uh, revelation of God. They were not, they were not true. So anyway, uh, the book of Henoch can be used now as a weapon by the enemies of the church to try to assault the faith of the weak faith of weak believers who will fall for the line that the church has somehow been concealing the, these truths, Gnostic truths from the people all this time, where the church is actually using her divine authority 
to distinguish between what is true and what is false, uh, what is divine truth and satanic error. And so it has come down to us that the book of Enoch we have is a, a corrupt text and we cannot follow it. Um, and this has to do also with the, uh, in the book of Enoch we read about um, the angels um, uh, inseminating the children of men and producing the giants that walked the earth in those days. And this, this is from the book of Enoch. And uh, this, again, you know, produces this, this rather phantasmagoric idea of angels having, uh, having sexual intercourse with, with human beings and producing giants, it sounds more like a, a Gnostic fairy tale than it does divine revelation. There's a reason for that. So one has to be very wary of that and understand these things correctly, as the church itself does. But, but I, I didn't want the entire last conference to revolve around this. I wanted, uh, and I know there's more. Oh, th you know, there is one other question that came up, and that has to do with the Wellhausen theory or the Wellhausen theory. And the Wellhausen theory was a, 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 an idea of, of interpreting sacred scripture. It was part of the modernist uh, text-critical historical method of trying to determine the value of any scriptural text that was written. And uh, the Wellhausen theory said that the, book, the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, was actually written not by Moses, but those first five books were actually a compilation of various authors. Um, for example, Wellhausen postulated that there's a certain segment of the first five books of Moses. You know what they are, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And uh, that these books are a compilation of separate authors' works. Uh, one of them he called the Priesterschrift, the priest's uh, writings. And they have to do with more like uh, worship and, uh, and quasi-sacramental things. And then you have other authors who each express their particular bent. Um, and so he was making the case that, you know, the first five books of the Bible were not written by Moses as the church had believed and taught, but were actually composed over years by different hands, different styles, uh, different errors expressed in the writings. This all was to undermine the idea that it was divinely inspired. This is all meant to undermine the idea that these, are, these books are the Word of God. Now, curiously enough, um, back in, what was it, the 1990s, I believe it was, um, actually, Scripture scholars uh, produced a program uh, to look at the style of writing and the content and so on, and ran, uh, that's a computer program, and ran the five books, the first five books of the Bible, the books of the Pentateuch, through this program. Uh, and the one question they were trying to answer is, what is the likelihood that all five of these books and everything in them was written by the same individual, namely Moses? And their purpose was to give some kind of a computer answer to show that these books could not have been written by the same individual. They were written by a multiplicity of individuals over time, therefore not divinely inspired. That's what they were looking to show. Curiously enough, when they ran the books of the Pentateuch through this program, 
their own program that they had devised with a pur purpose, a single purpose in mind, the answer came back that there is an 80% plus likelihood calculated by the computer that all of those books were written by one man. <laughs> in other words, Moses. And so they were somewhat disappointed with their result, but they couldn't argue with it because they put everything they had into this to try to get the proper results. And, uh, well, it came out that there's better than four, four out of five chances that, yes, these books were written all, all by Moses, so certainly far better than average. And uh, so it made them look rather foolish in their hypothesis, but they seemed to have proven, uh, hopefully not even to themselves perhaps, but they seemed to have established the fact that, yes, the church knows what she's talking about, that these books were produced by one man, and that is the great Moses, the lawgiver. Now, um, again, if we take this Wellhausen theory of the idea that the earliest scriptures were written by a multiplicity of people, what we see is kind of a curious uh, application to the book of Henoch, because the book of Henoch, as it turns out, was rejected by the church precisely because it was a compilation written by a, a multiplicity of people over time. Some, uh, uh, Henoch himself, certainly a very, very good man, loved by God, actually taken by God. And the book of the, uh, the Apocalypse tells us, well, as though it is interpreted, that in the end of the world, it is Elias, the prophet, and Henoch, the patriarch, who will return to withstand the Antichrist and to lead the resistance to the Antichrist. So Elias, the great prophet, and Henoch both were taken by God because of their stalwartness and their courage and their fidelity, and they're the ones who are going to be on the face of the earth withstanding the Antichrist. So Henoch himself was a very good man. There's no question about that that he produced these works, there's probably little, quite no question about that. The question is simply how much of his original work exists and how much has been overlaid by others who have, shall we say, piled their errors on top of it and inserted it in his book so there's now this gigantic work with all kinds of stuff in there. The church had to decide that. So... The reason why I'm mentioning this is because the church decided that the book of Henoch was in fact a mixture and therefore it was adulterated and you could not take it as it is as a divine book of revelation. But the church did say that the books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, were not a compilation, but they were all composed by Moses himself. And he is their author. He is God is their author, but God used Moses to convey these truths to us. That's what these modernists were denying, starting with Wellhausen. And in fact, you might say, in a sense, they proved themselves wrong. The church was right. The first five books are not a compilation, as Wellhausen insisted, but rather they are the work of Moses, inspired by God. Now, I wanted to come back to this theme of, uh, to, to close this conference. I wanted to come back to the idea of humility. We have to realize that humility is a solution to all of our problems because humility enables us to uh, avoid the greatest, the greatest threat, the greatest danger to us, human beings, is to, over, the second greatest danger, I should put it this way, the second greatest danger is to overestimate our own power. When human beings overestimate their own abilities and their own powers, they get themselves into serious trouble. 
That's the second greatest danger. But the first, the greatest danger of all is when human beings underestimate the power of God. That's the greatest danger. Both of these things involve humility. To overestimate our own powers and underestimate the power of God is our pride. It is humility that enables us to avoid that trap, not to overestimate our own powers and not to underestimate the power of God. We need that, we need that humility. Absolutely, we need that. We have to realize that the most humble being in existence, the most humble being is God, God himself. God is the most humble of all beings in existence because his understanding of reality is exactly accurate. He knows who he is. He knows who we are. That's what humility is. Humility is different for him than it is for us, of course, because in him, humility is infinite because his knowledge is infinite. Um, unfortunately, our knowledge is very finite, and that can lead us to illusions. God is subject to no illusions. He's a God of truth. He is the most humble of all beings, and that his understanding of his own power and goodness is absolutely accurate and true, whereas we have a very difficult time understanding what and who we are. Now, the eternal Son became man in fulfillment of God's promise to send a Redeemer. The eternal Son became man to fulfill the Father's promise. As the offspring of a woman who herself would be the enemy of Satan, the incarnate Son of God we know as our Lord Jesus Christ. This Son of God was sent into this world by the eternal Father and a mission. Mission, that means ascending. And thus, the incarnation of the Divine Son was an act of obedience, this act of obedience of the Divine Son to the Father. And throughout the Gospels, the Son of God made man, professes that he has come to do the will of the Father. That is his ultimate mission, to do the will of the Father. Throughout the Gospels, we read of the complete and utter submission, 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 mission, sent, sum, sub, that he is subject to the Father in this. The submission of his divine and human will, the Son of God, submits himself entirely to the Father's love. And so it is precisely in that admirable submission of the Son that we see the great and wonderful humility of Jesus Christ. And when our Lord tells us that we must learn from him, what is it that he wants us to learn? As they say, meekness and humble of heart. He wants us to learn humility, the virtue, and he wants us to learn how to practice it. This is the great lesson of our Lord's mission on earth. All of his words and all of his example, the lesson of his life, the lesson of his incarnation, that humankind might learn humility, who it really is, and who God is. It is through his own humility that Christ seeks to recall us to humility, that humility that is necessary for us to be restored to God and thus restored to grace, to be tied back and bound back to our God, and thus to be, again, filled with his grace. Humility is the right order or the true order. It is God's order in our lives and in our souls. How difficult is it to restore this humility in the human soul? 
We know that by his humility the Son of God repaired the insult our sins have offered to the divine goodness and majesty of the Father by his willing submission to suffering and death. Our Lord said in Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Christ redeemed every single human creature, Adam and Eve and all of their descendants. Christ redeemed on the cross. But having redeemed all, he might have saved none. All the souls now in the misery of hell were redeemed when Jesus Christ bowed his head and died on the cross. To be saved, they needed the humility of Christ in his absolute submission to the divine will. And so it is for each and every one of us here today. We are all redeemed, but to be saved, we must have the humility of Christ to be saved. And that humility some would define as the opposite and absence of pride. Tragically, pride is much in the headlines today, this month, tragically. But if one tries to understand humility merely as the absence of pride, then one has to define pride. The English word, the origin of our word pride, goes back to an ancient word meaning self-assured, bold, brave, courageous, confident, self-assertive, etc. Can those origins of the word pride shed light on the significance of the word pride today? We might see that someone who is meek, is not bold, is not self-assertive, but can someone who is humble be bold and courageous and confident? Is there really any contradiction between Humility and these things, boldness and courage, courageous. Certainly our Lord's humility did not prevent him from being bold and confident and courageous when he spoke of the Father and carried out his will. One might see that Christ's humility to the Father was the key and foundation to his boldness, confidence and courage. It was Christ's humility that enabled him to be bold and confident and courageous to be faithful to his Father's will against all opposition. And his very humility prevented him from being submissive and subject to those who hated and opposed his Father. So you see, being humble is not opposed to being courageous, quite the contrary. It's our pride that makes us weak. It's our pride that makes us tremble before the judgment of the world. It is humility that makes us powerful because we're not thinking in matters of self-interest. We're thinking in matters of principle, matters of love, matters of God. And we want to stand for him and nothing will prevent us from doing that. That's why the hum humble man can stand against the whole world without flinching because it is pride that is the source of all of our weakness. Perhaps there is one word that does connote pride, which is the opposite of humility, and that is the word self-assertive. This word conveys the idea of asserting one's self, one's own interests, one's own will, in order to overcome and to dominate others. It is not the same as being strong-willed, for our Lord himself, as a divine person, has the strongest of wills, even infinitely strong but Christ's human will was perfectly and perpetually subject to the divine will. 
And in that, we see his humility. The matter of human pride, however, concerns the wills of creatures who will not be subject to the divine will, but have determined to defy the will of God. The word humility is derived from the Latin word humus, soil, or dirt. Does humility then signify something so lowly as merely to be trodden on by others, like the dirt under our feet? Does the word humility mean to be used by others who have little regard or esteem for us? But our Lord himself says that his disciples must be rather as the salt of the earth. And if they lose their savor, then they are good for nothing but to be cast out into the dirt and trodden on by men. That's what our Lord says in St. Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, that if we who are to be the salt of the earth lose our savor, then we're good for nothing but to be thrown into the dirt and stomped on by others. Now that, that is not the dirt or the humility that our Lord wants from us. He doesn't want us to be trodden on by men. He wants us to be as the salt of the earth, and he wants us to keep that savor. Christ himself, though, speaks of humus. He speaks of the good ground. He speaks of the good ground. And the good ground yields fruit a hundredfold. So humility... Humus, soil, not just dirt, but soil, productive of good. That's what our Lord wants us to be. He wants us to be humble so that we can be productive. He wants us to be humble so we can be the good ground that can yield something for all of his investment of life in us. Our Lord wants us to produce something for him. And only the good ground can do that. Only the humus of the humility of the humble can produce that good. Our Lord tells us about the seed that was sown, the seed of faith, along the wayside, on the rock, among the thorns. None of that could grow and produce any good. It was all choked off by the love for the world and by the fear of the world, by the cares of the world. And that's what holds us back. The one thing that enables the good ground to produce the, the, the good fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold, is the fact that the seed was able to sprout and grow and flourish because of perseverance. And that's a key, a key junction here between the virtue of humility and the virtue of perseverance. The proud cannot persevere even in their good intentions because they are constantly being thwarted in their good intentions and their pride cannot handle that. And so they give up. But the humble are free from that. The opposition that comes to them in their good intentions does not in any way dampen their ardor or their love or their devotion. Rather, the opposition that they meet in trying to accomplish the good inspires, encourages the humble to try harder and to persevere. And that's the key. Only the humble will persevere. The rest will give up. 
And what is the price to be paid for that? Damnation. What is the price to be gained? What is the prize to be gained by humility and perseverance? Our Lord says it very well himself. He says, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. That might be saved, will be saved. He says it, it's a promise. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. But to persevere, we have to be humble, even as he himself is humble. We pray for that. We ask God to give us that grace of humility. So with that, we end the conference here. We do have the rosary starting in 10 minutes, so I'll see you then.